Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Yes, he calls her a horse face and she says he's got a small penis. Welcome to politics in the era of Donald Trump, everybody. Oh, my God, how far we have sunk. And you know what? Under him, we're going to sink even further. Just you wait. Here we go on a Wednesday, Wednesday, October 17. It is the Bill Press Show live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with the news of the day, and there is, as always, lots to talk about. Never a dull day in the era of Donald Trump. Uh, and did you ever think we would get to the point where uh, one of our allies uh, has its agents murder a journalist, not only lure him into their consulate, murder him, dismember his body, and who knows what they did with the body parts, commit such a heinous crime, and the United States at least the president of the United States, defends them and says, hey, what's the big deal? He wasn't killed on American soil. He wasn't an American citizen. They deny it, and so it probably didn't happen. And, of course, they are innocent, he says, until proven guilty. In fact, he, can, he condemns anybody else for suggesting otherwise that they that, that saying, like, but the rest of us consider them guilty before being proven innocent. It is getting worse and worse by the day, just proving that Donald Trump has no moral compass whatsoever. All right, we're going to jump into that and all the rest of the news of the day with all of you. And as always, you are our most important guest of the day. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty. Just a couple of other stories making news. Baseball playoffs, Bill. They continued last night. The Brewers and the L.A. Dodgers last night went to 14 innings into extra innings. 
But it was Cody Bellinger for the Dodgers who took to the plate. Guerra on three and two to Bellinger. Here's the pitch. Ground ball, base hit into right field. Machado's on his way home. Throw to the plate, and the Dodgers will win it. They win it two to one, and the series is all even. That's it. The series is now That's tied a great two series. to two. Great. It's, it's such a good series. Yeah. I mean, really. I, I will say these are the four teams that are left, the Brewers, the Dodgers, the Astros, Astros and, and the, the Red Sox. They are probably the four best. They, they perform the best through the season. So yeah. these are real slogs. Both series are tied. Yesterday, the Red Sox won. They tied that series up. So mm-hmm. uh, it was late, late, late last night that the Dodger <laughs> game ended. I'm not sure if you stayed up for it, Bill. No, I did not. No, that yeah. wasn't for you. Uh, oh, well, you know what else happened last night? It was the premiere of The Connors. It is the new show featuring all the members of the Roseanne Barr family without Roseanne. Whoa. She is no longer on the show. In fact, they addressed it last night. and It's a little bit of a spoiler. I don't know if you wanted to watch it and be surprised, but she, they killed her off. They killed her off on the show, and it was because... In the Saudi consulate? Not in the Saudi consulate. Roseanne went to the Saudi consulate. Yes, that's what happened. Uh, Did they dismember her body? She died on the show of opioid abuse. Opioid abuse. Yeah. So they, again, you know, we're talking Trump country. We're talking Trump voters. That's something that a lot of people are dealing with. So uh, that's how they addressed it last night on the show. I didn't watch it. I'm not, I don't think it's for me, but, uh, you know, they're going to keep trying to do this, this show without her. Uh, okay. Well, good, good luck. I didn't watch it before. I'm not going to watch it now. Bill, you have Alexa. I know you're a big I fan do. of Alexa. Uh, yes. Yesterday, Facebook announced that they are getting into the home assistant game. Apple has their home pod. Amazon has Alexa. They announced Portal. Portal. It is their version <laughs> of a home assistant that you put in your house to help you do all these different kinds of things. Alexa's been screwing up lately. Uh, She got into this thing. I kept asking for this particular classical music station, and she kept saying, "Uh, and here we are for the big 70 roundup or something like that. I could not get her not to say it. I don't know what happened. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, come on. What do you mean the Saudis are guilty? Donald Trump says that's a problem. We treat everybody as guilty until proven innocent. Lay off the Saudis, he says. He's defending the cold-blooded murderers. Do you ever think you'd see the day when the President of the United States defends one of our allies for murdering a journalist? That's where we are in Donald Trump land. What do you say, everybody? Hello, hello, hello. It is a big Wednesday, Wednesday, October 17. So good to see you today and good to have you part of the program. Couldn't do it without you. And we love the fact that you are with us here every morning uh, to start off the day and through the rest of the day to catch up with the uh, news of that particular day as we bring it to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., all across this great land of ours, indeed, all around the world, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you, of course, on the radio, statewide in Indiana, on Indiana Talks, and uh, in Chicago and all the surrounding area of Chicago on the great WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago, 
And there you are on television land. We don't forget you either, all of our good friends watching on Free Speech TV. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the program. And don't forget, you are part of it. We have our good lineup of guests today, including Daryl Lind from Vox, who covers immigration issues. Donald Trump warning Honduras yesterday uh, that we're going to cut off any aid to your country if you let anybody from Honduras come across the border illegally into the United States. Matt Fuller from uh, covers the Congress for HuffPost. We'll be along as well to see uh, what Republicans are saying about that big budget deficit, the largest in the last six years under Donald Trump. Uh, and then we'll be joined by Maria Urbino, who is the political director for Indivisible, great grassroots organization, very, very active in House races this year. And she'll tell us which ones are focusing on which ones we should be paying attention to, uh, which of the many districts that Democrats are going to win to put them over the top and uh, put Democrats back in control of the House of Representatives. So with that good lineup, we welcome you to the program and invite your comments on all the news of the day on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Yes, indeed. I mean, every single day, uh, there is more and more evidence to point to the fact that, indeed, the very worst that we feared happened uh, at the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul, where we see video, you've seen the picture, of Jamal Khashoggi walking into that consulate to get this piece of paper he needed uh, to prove he'd been divorced in Saudi Arabia. He was able then to legally marry his fiancée, who was waiting out front of the consulate for him, uh, he there's a photo of him going out. He never left that consulate alive. Um, pretty clear of that now, even though the Saudis at first insisted he went out a back door. He's not been seen since. Uh, and as the New York Times reported yesterday, after denial, 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 uh, the Saudis are now apparently prepared to say, but they are taking days to get their put their story together. Uh, that Jamal Khashoggi was detained in the consulate. Uh, he was interrogated by a team of Saudis who went to uh, Turkey for that purpose uh, and was, they say, accidentally killed as part of that interrogation. And according to the Turks, his body then was dismembered on the spot by a forensic um expert who had who a doctor who was on part of this team uh, uh, who just happened to show up with a bone saw and we don't know what happened beyond that and in the light of all of this by the way uh the this goon squad of 15 people and uh, turkish authorities have pictures of them arriving at the airport sending it turning in their passport there's no doubt this team of 15 people came from saudi arabia to istanbul that day went to the consulate performed their duties, left Istanbul that day. The consul general uh, of, of, to, uh, of the Saudi consul general who was assigned to Istanbul also left that day and was expected not to return. The um, Saudi ambassador to the United States left the United States that day and they say is not expected to return. And the New York Times points out this morning that at least... Four of the 15 suspects uh, that uh, a 15 member goon squad that, w that went to Turkey have very close ties to the prince 
Muhammad, Muhammad bin Salman, MBS. Uh, one of them, in fact, is a frequent companion of the crown prince who is seen with him often uh, in photographs at different events. And to prove that, the New York Times has a series here of five photographs. Um, the, here is this guy. His name is Maher Abdullah. I can't pronounce it. Maher Mutreb. That's the best I can do, folks. He's shown here arriving in Istanbul on October 2nd, last day that uh, Jamal Khashoggi was seen alive. Uh, this man, Maher Mutreb, is shown right alongside of the prince in Boston on March 25 when he did his little visit here to the United States. He is shown right alongside of the crown prince in Houston on April 7. He is shown getting off the Saudi Arabia royal plane with the crown prince in Paris on April 9. And here he is again in Madrid right alongside of the crown prince on April 11. He's the crown prince's buddy-buddy, travels with him all the time. He was a member of that team that went to Istanbul to, <laughs> air quotes, interrogate Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, a, three others uh, are linked by witnesses and other records to the Saudi crown prince. And a fifth one is the forensic doctor who holds senior positions in the Saudi interior ministry and medical establishment a figure of such stature that he could be directed only by a high-ranking Saudi authority, says the New York Times. In other words, the idea that this was some kind of a rogue operation is totally ridiculous. These are high-ranking Saudis close to the crown prince sent to um, Istanbul for one purpose only, mission accomplished. And what's stunning is with all of this information, more and more comes out every day. What do we get from the president of the United States? Well, first of all, he said, I talked to the king uh, and he denied it. Oh, so therefore, we got to believe him. Yesterday, that was two days ago. Yesterday, he said, I talked to the crown prince and he denied it. So two denials. Donald Trump says, hey, that's good enough for me, just like for Roy Moore. And then he gave an interview last night with the Associated Press, which blows your mind. He said to the United States Associated Press, quote, unquote, here we go again. Here we go again. Guilty until proven innocent, just like Brett Kavanaugh. This is horrifying. Unbelievable. He's comparing this, this cold, this heinous, cold-blooded murder to... Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah. So Brett Kavanaugh denied it. Therefore, I believed him. The Saudis deny it. Therefore, I believe them. We, we thought Brett Kavanaugh was guilty before. He, he, he was never proven innocent. And this is just like him. So he's, he's putting them on the same level? Does this guy have any moral compass whatsoever? Obviously not. You know, I, I, we talked about this, this story about the Saudi journalist for a couple <laughs> of days now, right? And I've been very concerned and bothered by it but after this stuff uh i'm i'm legitimately terrified for a lot of different reasons right but one of them is that the only thing that really stops these people 
whoever it is, right? The the uh, 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 these people who are drunk yeah. on power who will stop at nothing to silence their critics and things like that. The only thing that stops them is sort of other decent people who get in their way, and. Yeah. We don't have that anymore. And by the way, and they've that ado- used to be the role of the United States. Right. It's gone. It's gone. And they've also adopted the methods of Donald Trump because we're now seeing what you can get away with when you just flat out lie and don't care about any of the accountability. Yeah. I'm it's like you said, you. they originally said, oh, he went out the back door. Yeah. Or, oh, we don't know where he is. Or, oh, it was accidental. And the Donald Trump with the rogue killers. And this is also uh, the Trump, very Trumpian, because like with Brett Kavanaugh, he started out by saying, oh, Christine Blasio Ford, she seemed very credible to me. She seems like a nice lady. Right. And then he he, he moves into, oh, no, 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 he denied it. It couldn't have happened. And then he turns around and says she was lying and it couldn't have happened or she would have remembered everything. And he mocked her and made fun of her. You see the pattern here? He started out by saying, remember, we played this clip on Monday morning. Oh, there's going to be severe punishment. If they, if they find out that they did any of this or if the king, if they find out that the crown prince knew anything about it. And he went from there to, well, they deny it. Therefore, they deny it. We got to stick with them because they deny it. And now he goes all the way to it's our fault because we are considering them guilty until proven uh, innocent. Just the opposite of what I mean. I, I got to tell you, friends, we can differ on a lot of stuff, right? Uh, and I know some of you conservatives and Trumpers tune in to get your hate fix every morning, okay? We can disagree on public policy. We can disagree on Donald Trump. But Jesus, I never thought we would get to the day when the president of the United States defend cold-blooded killers. And you know what? I believe with Donald Trump's help, Saudi Arabia is going to escape. They're going to get away with this. What's going to happen to them? We're not going to put any sanctions on them because Donald Trump doesn't want to screw the big arms deal that we have with them. He says it's worth $110 billion, which is not. But at any rate, he's made it, he made it very clear we got this arms deal. He also made it very clear. Uh, it's also very clear that Donald Trump has some ties to the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia that go way, 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 way beyond when he was president. Uh, Jonathan Carl from ABC News pointed this out, that uh, Donald Trump, before he started getting all the money from Russia, he was getting it. His big ATM were the Saudis. This is a relationship that goes back a long time for Donald Trump. You, you remember in 1991 when he was in financial trouble and he had to sell his yacht, he sold it to the Saudis. Mm. It was a Saudi prince, big part of the investment group, that bought the Plaza Hotel from him in 1995. And 2001, they reportedly bought an entire floor of the Trump World Hotel in New York. So the Saudis have a long history with Donald Trump. So they've been bailing him out, bailing him out. And by the way, Donald Trump admitted it back in, here it is, here he is, 2015. Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me, they spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. I mean, what, money, what on money, earth? Money, money, bottom line. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's so candid about that. I mean, unbelievably, disarmingly candid, as he was when he said the other day, no, oh, I can't go, I can't criticize the Saudis because we got this arms deal with them, man, and everybody else, everybody else is trying to get this arms deal, but we won, and now you know, we can't screw the pooch here. You know, we got we to gotta continue to be nice to the Saudis. 
uh, no matter how many journalists uh, that they murdered. But his comment yesterday uh, that this is just like Brett Kavanaugh. Well, um, you know, usually you don't find senators um, uh, with nothing to say who are just blown away by something. But it happened to Bernie Sanders last night. He was on CNN, Chris Cuomo's show on, on CNN. He hears this for the first time, and poor Bernie, he is, he is speechless. The president just referred to what's happening in Saudi Arabia with the investigation of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi and what seems to be his death or his murder as another case of guilty until proven innocent like Kavanaugh. That's what he's saying. Jesus. You know, it is it is really hard to keep up with this. Is that really what he said? I hadn't followed that. Yeah, why would I make it up? It just came out. You know, I don't know. I, I just don't know, you know, how to respond to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How do you respond Man, to that? It, yeah. It's terrible. There's, I mean, there is no response to it. It's just, it's insane. It's mania. Yeah. And, you know, you've got one question. Well, there's so many questions about this. But, you know, one I keep coming back to is, oh, okay, everybody, the, the story appears to be that they sent these people from Saudi Arabia to interrogate. They knew he was coming into the embassy. He had obviously made an appointment to come in and pick up this piece of paper. So they sent this goon squad there knowing he was coming in to interrogate them. Why? Why? What had he done wrong? Think about that. The only thing he had done wrong was he had written a couple of articles, including a couple of op-eds in the Washington Post, critical of the Saudi government. I mean, Jesus, that means I could be dragged in to some embassy. I could be dragged into the State Department under that rule. I've certainly written a lot of articles and op-eds and columns critical of the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. That's all that this guy had done. And they felt that they had to interrogate, detain and interrogate him. And that, so that whole question, right? The other question I keep pointing is to what extent, and I believe this to a large extent, to what extent has Donald Trump's anti-media rhetoric, his inflammatory comments about the media, emboldened and given a green light to other rogues, dictators, murderers around the planet to think, all right, it's open season on journalists. According to Donald Trump, anything goes. They are, remember what Donald Trump said, the enemy of the American people? You take that kind of rhetoric and you take it to as a logical, I mean, you, you follow that logic, you get what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in, in Istanbul. And so to, to a large extent, I think Donald Trump has blood on his hands uh, from, the, from, from his rhetoric. Uh, this troubling, troubling. We've never, I, 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 never, never, I think in our history have we faced a crisis, a moral crisis like this with a president with no moral compass whatsoever. No, I think you're right. And I, I mean, don't think that's an overstatement. Go through the history. You won't find this. Yeah. You, you know, and, and this is just a pattern. You know, when you look at Russia and you look at the Helsinki summit where he just sort of refused yeah. to show any sort of strength well, Again, whatsoever. what did he say there? He denied it. He denied it. He denied it. He denied it. Therefore, what can I do? Yeah. He denied it. So there. That's it.
Right. I, I think of the comment that I read yesterday that someone tweeted at us. It's about, you know, when you have a pathological liar, pathological liars tend to believe other pathological liars. You know, they give them the benefit of the doubt. If there someone says, I right. deny this and I didn't do it, it's very easy to con somebody like that. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, another news, the president also called Stormy Daniels a horse face. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, right. Which might get a lot of attention if... <laughs> And it did get a lot of attention, but it might get more attention if the fact that Donald Trump had also not condoned uh, a mass murderer, uh, not a mass murderer, but, but a, mur- a cold-blooded murderer. Uh, and you know what happened here, because as we told you yesterday morning, a federal judge threw out the defamation lawsuit that Stormy Daniels had filed against uh, against Donald Trump. Donald Trump couldn't, re- he that was a victory for him, but he couldn't resist it. He had to rub it in. He had to come out with his tweet. And he tweeted, uh, you've got it up here. I have there. it right yeah, here. He, right. he he first tweeted the uh, headline from Fox News, federal judge throws out Stormy Daniels' lawsuit versus mm-hmm. Trump. Trump is entitled to full legal fees. And then he says, great, now I can go after Horseface and her third-rate lawyer in the great state of Texas. She will confirm the letter she signed. She knows nothing about me. A total con. Yes. And, of course, Horseface uh, here, here once again. By the way, notice Donald Trump. Obviously, he does criticize men too. His critics. He never talks about their physical appearance. Lion Ted, little Marco, all of that, right? Uh, low energy Jeb, but with women, it's always about their physical appearance. Uh, often about their physical appearance. But I mean, this is a line. You know, he told uh, he he called Ariana Huffington ugly inside and out. Uh, Omarosa, right, was a dog he doesn't and even a lowlife. He doesn't even hold back from his fellow Republicans. Remember d- when he first was running for president? Carly Fiorina. Carly Fiorina. Yeah, look at that face, he look said. Do you think face. anybody would vote for that face? Yeah. Uh, he talked about Hillary Clinton when she walked by. You know, boy, she didn't impress me. She didn't look you know, good to me. Not sexy enough to me. By the way, for Stormy Daniels, yeah, he didn't think she was a horse face when he was banging her, right? Uh-huh. Hey, Donald, what about that? Why'd you pay $130,000, Donald? Because she had a horse face? It's just so disgusting. Uh, And Stormy Daniels uh, fired back (laughs) with her own own tweet. This is, again, this is the level of political discourse uh, in the country today. Uh, She fired back. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present your president. In addition to his um, uh, shortcomings, he has demonstrated his incompetence his hatred of women and lack of self-control on Twitter again, and perhaps a pension for best bestiality. Um, game over, tiny, she says. Uh, so there you go, the level of political discourse in the world of Donald Trump. Um, there is, um, we always like to remind you, some other news of the day. Oh, really? There's a, uh, it's not yes, just about indeed. trading insults on Twitter? <laughs> no, no, it's not just about that. We mentioned, by the way, um, yesterday, the fact that the budget deficit has ballooned up to seven hundred and sixty-eight billion. I believe it is. It's the uh, it went up seventeen percent in Donald Trump's first fiscal year. It's the biggest that has ever it's, that has been in the last six years. Um, I told you I'd give you a million dollars yesterday if any Republican came out and said this is terrible. Nobody did. Uh, Paul Ryan just sort of said, "Well, this is a this is the way." It, <laughs> 
way things are these days, right? Paul Ryan, who yeah. was one of the yeah. loudest voices right. when Barack Obama was president, when we saw any movement in the mm-hmm. debt whatsoever, now all of a sudden doesn't have a voice on it. Isn't that curious? Right. No. And he, Mitch McConnell sort of said, well, I don't like this, but it's because we're spending too much money on Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah, that was Mitch McConnell. So uh, therefore, we have to cut Medicare. That's the only way we're going to get the deficit down. But again, he didn't say, this is terrible. We really got to do something about it. Uh, meanwhile, the Greenberg yesterday released a poll showing that, uh, uh, and we, we, we told you, I skipped a beat here, that when these the Treasury Department released the size of the deficit, they did admit, the Treasury Department admitted that the problem is, and what really caused the deficit to soar, is the tax cuts last year, which reduced revenue so dramatically because so many, so much of the tax cuts went to the wealthiest of Americans, and therefore they were not paying taxes. The federal government has less money. The deficit soars. Um, Americans get the point, according to this Greenberg poll released yesterday, 52% of Americans disapprove of the Republican tax cuts of last year. The tax cuts that they were going to make their big feature, the, their, the number one plank of their agenda for 2018 for re-election were going to be running on the tax cuts. Uh, the reason they don't talk about them anymore, they see the polls as well. 52% of Americans disapprove of the tax cuts. 40% of the Americans uh, approve only approve of the tax. A 12-point difference uh, on that uh, on that one particular issue. Uh, and on other news of the day, uh, have you bought your Powerball tickets yet? Oh, man. The, there was no winner last night in the Mega Million. Our first winning number tonight is 69. That's followed by 45. Up next, we have 61. Your next number is 3, and your final white ball for this Tuesday evening is... 49. Now for the Mega Ball. That Mega Ball number is 9. Nobody got it. Mega Ball went on. And now on Friday, Peter, the number I saw, it's going to be up to $868 million. Second largest. The second largest in American history is what it's going to be. Yeah. That's amazing. It's crazy. And by the way, tonight is Powerball. Right. And the Powerball is up to $345 million. Tonight, I don't oh, think that's the largest, yeah. but so if you add the two of those together, okay, get here it is. My advice: get two tickets, one <laughs> each. Get a Mega Ball ticket and a Powerball ticket, one point one, about one point one, one point two billion dollars. You double your chances of losing that. One. Yes, right. <laughs> and here's the best part: take a page out of Jared Kushner's book, and you will pay no taxes on any of it. <laughs> Or Donald Trump's book, right? What a great opportunity. I love it. Did you get your you getting your tickets today? I'm gonna to get my Powerball ticket right after this show. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. You're gonna get your Mega Million, man. I don't know where to get a Mega Million ticket. Um, All right. can you get them in DC? I think so. I, I know can find have, I'll find out. I know we have Powerball. Yeah, I'll find yeah. out. Okay. I'll find out. Yes, if you find out, I'll get I'll get one. And if not, there are some of the surrounding areas. I'll grab you one in Maryland. <laughs> Then I, I, I just get, I no, just get a little no, cut. That's all. That. I, just, I just get a little cut. <laughs> yeah, That's all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I know. Okay, we got to move along. But there's something we talked the other day. Remember, Peter, you did this story about uh, this. I just find this fascinating. Sears going basically. They yeah. filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, and they're going to close some more stores. They say they're going to come back. Right? They're not coming back. They'll not. They won't come back. Doesn't feel like Sears it. is done. Right? 
Uh, it can't compete today with Walmart and everything. But it, it's hard to imagine how what a king they were of retail sales at one time. And what I, I saw this article in the New York Times yesterday. I didn't realize this. There was a time, you know, the Sears catalog was like thicker than any phone book, right? Um, there was a time with, with, with on Sears where you could actually buy a house. Yeah. You know, I there's this picture yeah. of this house. It's a Sears house. And when you ordered the house, right, they had 40, wait, 447 different styles of houses you could buy from the Sears catalog. Okay? And the customers would receive the lumber, the nails, the varnish, the carved staircase parts, the plumbing components, and more, and all the instructions for assembling. It's crazy. Yeah. And I the, wonder if any these, these are houses, not doll houses. These no. are real houses. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I wonder if these it's houses are still amazing. standing anywhere. They got to be, right? No, obviously they are. Yeah, yeah. here's a picture of one uh, in the New York Times. But to think about, you know, it wasn't just like you could buy a lawnmower, right? Or, you know, a new washing machine or a new, you know, underwear or a new dress or something like that. An actual house. It was Amazon before Amazon was the thing. No, absolutely. One one <laughs> here's here the, one design was modeled after Mount Vernon. <laughs> <laughs> you could have your own little mini Mount Vernon. That's amazing. There'll never be a retail giant like that. I mean, no. you can go to Costco and you can get almost anything at Costco, right? You can't buy a house. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. And you can get anything delivered on Amazon. Not a house. House delivery. Not yet. House delivery from Amazon. <laughs> Instead of delivering to the house, they <laughs> deliver your house <laughs> to the vacant lot. It is just amazing. All right. What a day. What a day. So much to talk about. Here we go. Uh, and, yes, there is a caravan of uh, people who are fleeing Honduras. But Donald Trump says, don't you let them get anywhere near the United States. Daryl Lynn covers immigration issues for Vox. Joining us next here on The Bill Press Show. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. On a Wednesday, October 17, The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. And joining you nationwide, online, on the radio, and on television, thanks to the support of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They are a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families. We salute their good work, thank them for the support of the program, and direct you to their website to find out more at ufcw.org. Uh, uh, joining us in studio, Dara Lind is a senior reporter covering immigration issues for the great Vox at vox.com. Hi, Dara. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good to see you. Lots to talk about on the immigration front. Isn't there uh, always? Yeah, isn't there always, right. Uh, but um, so far this morning, we've touched on several issues, uh, generating a few comments here, Peter. Yes, indeed. Let's first of all start with the poll that we put up yesterday about oh, whether or not yes. Beto O'Rourke will beat Ted Cruz. You still have about 30 minutes left if you want to go vote, but right now uh, it's pretty one-sided. 
People, 71% say yes, Beto O'Rourke will be Ted Cruz. 29% say no. I appreciate the enthusiasm and optimism. Of I do, too. And by the way, I'm not I'm not ready. To, uh, too many people are saying, well, Ted Cruz is ahead in Texas, therefore it's all over. No, That's I don't think BS. it's over. There are three yeah. weeks to go. Yeah. You know? But I, I will say, no matter what happens, it's going to be damn close. It is. No matter it is. what happens. And, and by the way, as... Um, Alex Seitzwald from NBC News told us yesterday, it's Texas. So it's a big uphill battle. Right. I mean, I think the question for me isn't does Beto beat Ted, but does Beto beat Democrats' statewide performance in previous cycles? And if so, by how much? Like, the question isn't necessarily – like, we know that the demographics are going a certain direction. The question is – can, is whether Democrats are finally turning that into an electoral machine. Yeah. yeah. Yes, right. Uh, innocent until proven guilty. That is one of the things that Donald Trump said about the uh, Saudi Arabians. We got a couple of comments. No, no, on no. That. He said we're treating them guilty until proven right. innocent. Of right, course. right. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, a couple of comments on that. Uh, Tracy says, don't forget the Central Park Five where Trump and his op ed and his view that they Thank were guilty you. before yes. proven innocent. And even when they were found innocent, he refused he to apologize. He still said they were guilty. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, some other comments. Uh, KG says, Bill, please don't go to the Turkish embassy in D.C. Just please don't. We need you. Uh, Loretta says the comparison. The, I have n- no. The, what, what's this? It was the Saudi consulate yes. in Turkey. Yeah. Right. I'm, I have no intention of going to either the Turkish or the Saudi consulate. Probably for the best. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Loretta says the comparison between the Saudis and Kavanaugh may be more apt than he realized. It certainly doesn't flatter Trump or Kavanaugh. On that same note, uh, Loon Luna says apparently Trump considers Kavanaugh to be no better than a murderous Saudi prince. If you have a comment on any topic, at any time, you can find us on Twitter at BP Show. I just can't wait to, at some point, to hear Republicans in Congress how they're going to defend these comments of Donald Trump. Oh, this is—it's going to happen. It's you know, gonna the interview. I mean, it's going to—that's it. There's a certain level of indefensibility where the solution is to just pretend that they're not responsible for paying attention to the news. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where we're going to be. I don't know. Maybe Lindsey Graham will come up with a way to do it. But. I don't. Or we don't have all the facts. I mean, yeah. or the president knows more than we know. And, you know, he says it didn't happen. Therefore, we have to believe our president. Who knows? But they're going to have to twist themselves inside out like a pretzel to defend to defend this. So, um, Daryl Lind, what is going on with this ca- caravan of people from Honduras the president is so worked up about it. He was tweeting about it yesterday two or three times, mm-hmm. uh, threatening Honduras. He's now also threatening Guatemala and El Salvador. We now have threats to all three northern triangle countries that he's going to cut off all aid so, so if what, they don't stop what, people from leaving. What, what triggered these tweets, first Right. Of all? So you may recall that in, in in April, there was a large caravan of people coming up from the those three countries, the Northern Triangle, up through Mexico that kind of attracted media attention and from there attracted Trump's attention. This is a kind of similar phenomenon. There, this group of initially only about 150, but as it as it went through Honduras, uh, hundreds of people began joining. Uh, going up to the U.S., there's because the journey through Mexico is so dangerous, the opportunity to kind of travel in large numbers means less opportunity to get 
you know, to be the victim of crime, less opportunity to just kind of get detained or disappeared by Mexican authorities. So a lot of Hondurans joined for various reasons, came through. The government of Guatemala on Monday said they weren't going to let them cross into Guatemala. uh, And then after a several hour standoff, relented and they came through. The government of Mexico has already said so that... So they went from Honduras to Guatemala. Yeah, through Guatemala and then kind of going north from there through... The plan is to go through Mexico and then travel the several <laughs> weeks to the U.S. Um, you know, walking or on transit as necessary, already walking to the point where people's feet are blistered. Uh, so the government of Mexico, which allowed the previous caravan in spring to go through, but then took efforts to forcibly disperse them, allowed some of them to apply for asylum in Mexico, gave others of them transit papers so that they could go up to the U.S. They've said that they're not letting this caravan in unless they already applied for visas from the Mexican consulate in Honduras, which they didn't. So it's that's likely to be, as, as far as anyone knows now, the end point. But the Trump administration doesn't appear super sanguine about that outcome. And not only President Trump, but actually President or Vice President Pence talked to the president of Honduras yesterday and tweeted about that, saying that it was a violation of America's border and sovereignty for large numbers of Hondurans to leave Honduras for Guatemala en route to the U.S. So it's it's certainly an indication of the theory of border security that the Trump administration has and frankly is kind of demonstrating something that's been going on for a while, which is that the U.S. government sees it as the responsibility of countries to its south to prevent people from even getting to the U.S.-Mexico border. It's not even about people not being able to cross into the U.S. or not crossing into the U.S. illegally. It's about the idea that if anyone even shows up, it's some kind of threat to security. I I just got to point that it it does seem to me that this is sort of... um, anti-immigrant policy on steroids, meaning you not only are going after the people who cross the border and come illegally into the United States, you're going after the governments of the countries they came from saying, it's your fault you let them leave your country in the first place. Right. By the way, so what foundation in international law allows Donald Trump to do that? There the isn't idea any, that the pre- right? It's this is none, this right? is Donald Trump's theory of immigration, which we've seen, you know, way back going to his <laughs> campaign, his first campaign speech, where he talked about Mexico sending their best people, not sending their best people. Back to his critiques of the diversity visa program, where he talks about countries picking bad people to send to the United States. To the travel ban, which is based in a conflation of what a country's government is doing and what its people are doing, Donald Trump sees migration as something that governments either send people or they refuse to send people, and he'd prefer they not send people at all. So it's, you know, it it has no bearing in reality whatsoever. And this is actually where it gets a little bit tricky is the Trump administration, in people who are not Donald Trump, who understand that you can't just prevent people from leaving, that if the U.S., which is extremely well funded and has all this technology, can't stop everyone from entering, that surely, you know, Honduras can't stop everyone from leaving. Uh, they understand that it's more that trying to stop people from leaving is a strategic concern when it comes to Central American migration. Uh, the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection uh, took a trip to Guatemala actually recently because there's been a big surge in Guatemalan immigration over the summer uh, trying to figure out 
what was driving people to leave. And there's a great piece in The Wall Street Journal about this by Alicia Caldwell, who was you know, with him on that trip. He kind of went in thinking, oh, it's just poverty. We just need to fix poverty and then it'll be done. And he left going, gee, this is a complicated situation. There are lots of problems here. But very frustrated with the Guatemalan government for not doing more to encourage people to stay because the incentive for a country is, well, you know, if you're if you want people to make money and and it's easier for them to make money abroad and send that money back, that's better for your economy. If you don't want them to leave, it might not be about economic concerns. It might be about human rights concerns. And in that case, that's maybe not a government you should be encouraging. So yeah. there's a lot of the the question of how to kind of address these quote unquote root causes is pretty complicated, not just on the diplomatic level, but also on the kind of policy and human rights level, uh, which is also kind of why there have been these concerns about well, if you empower the Mexican government to do anything it wants to with Central American refugees, you know, the, some estimates have like 950,000 refugees have been detained and deported by Mexican authorities, many of whom could have been eligible for asylum. There were some reports a few years ago that Central American refugees were being tortured before being returned. It's not exactly a pro-human rights framework here. It's just a do whatever you have to do. Just don't let them show up to the border at San Ysidro. Well, as you have written, his policy actually has endangered some immigrants' lives. Yes, right? absolutely. Uh, and this is actually it's it's interesting that this caravan is kind of coming up now because there have been recent reports kind of filling in the blanks of what the, of the story of the last caravan in April and May uh, that a human rights report, a human rights watch report from that came out last week detailed that while they were waiting to cross into the U.S., because a few hundred of them made it to the U.S., Mm -hmm. presented themselves legally at a port of entry and were told that there wasn't room to process them. So they had to wait for several days or weeks. They were letting in a few at a time. And during that time, two of them who were transgender women were picked up by police. Uh, One of them was said she was beaten and had bruises on her neck uh, by the police. Uh, They'd been held in jail overnight. A shelter where some other asylum seekers were waiting was robbed by armed men and then the door was set on fire in what appears to be an attempted arson uh, for what appeared to be you know, homophobic and anti-migrant hate crimes. It's not exactly like the government of Mexico is taking a huge amount of responsibility to safeguard the safety of these asylum seekers while they're waiting. The United States government isn't either. Uh, One Mexican official told Human Rights Watch that they'd been told to take the plaza where a bunch of asylum seekers were waiting and forcibly clear it out and check everyone's papers. And if their travel visas from Mexico were expired, they should deport them, which given that the reason that their travel visas might be running out would be because they were yeah. waiting in Mexico longer yeah. than they thought they were going to. It's a, It raises a lot of really big questions. I mean, human rights ad- advocates and lawyers at the border have been alleging for a while that the Mexican government is instead of getting an orderly process at ports of entry for people, again, to enter legally. That's your right. that's a, a way to present yourself for asylum without breaking any U.S. laws uh, that they've been taking that opportunity to just to 
check a bunch of people's papers while they're waiting in line in the U.S. and get them out of line. So there really are a lot of questions here. But because it's not being presented as a mass of people trying to get into the U.S., it doesn't grab the attention of media here in the way that a large group of people coming Uh, in does. Like the the caravan doesn't doesn't get Donald Trump's attention perhaps as well either. And and just a final point on that. I mean, uh, if... Again, to the question which I find stunning of holding the president of Honduras responsible personally for anybody who leaves this country. Uh, as a citizen of this country, I've got a right to leave this country anytime I want, don't I? Yeah, and of course, this isn't right? even and getting have into right, the fact they that have a right the to leave government of Honduras has been engaging in repressive response to anti-government protests after last fall's contested election. Like, there, it's not exactly like there are not concerns about the quality of democracy in these countries to begin with. One of the concerns in Guatemala also is a lot of people are leaving because they're worried about the state of human rights because the government of Guatemala is trying to expel a United Nations run anti-corruption body. There are there are definitely concerns that you could imagine another administration seeing as reasons not to partner with these governments. But that's not the reason that Trump is mad at them. Yeah, got it. Uh, Meanwhile, what is happening? We don't hear much anymore about the policy of family separation. Well, except Uh, for on Friday when we heard rumors about it. uh, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But so one is led might come to the conclusion that it must not be happening anymore because we don't hear about it. Right. Which so, is not the case, correct? No, no. So, well, it's important it, to be super so, clear here, right? There is no longer a policy of if you come to the U.S. as a family between ports of entry, you will be separated. That kind of default separation policy, uh, which was in effect for several months earlier this year, no longer is. And most of those families have been reunited. That said, we have gotten indications that that isn't that the numbers that have been provided in, you know, kind of those proceedings aren't the full scale of family separation because they don't count families that the government says are were separated because of concerns of, quote unquote, fraud. And this same Human Rights Watch report also got comments from the government that indicate that fraud includes cases where it's a grandparent and grandchild instead of a parent and child, which is not that infrequent. And it includes cases where the government says there isn't enough evidence to prove a relationship, even though birth certificates and passports were actually given to U.S. authorities as part of the asylum case when parents presented. So this is we don't we have no idea so how, how many, many families cases are we talking is. about today where there are kids separated from their parents? Well, because they're not even keeping fraud numbers, we have no idea. Right. That's we, the scary thing in all of it. Yeah. yeah, it's right. Right. There's it's there's just not a way to know. I mean, I have heard anecdotally of a bunch of cases in particular of grandparents and grandkids. And that is the position of the U.S. government is if you're not the legal guardian, you will be considered a fraudulent family and separated. And so not only is that not but, being recorded, but there's no apparent recourse. But didn't we see this tent that the, 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 didn't they move all these kids to this big tent city in right. Texas? Yes. So there is a they, separate. There so is there a, were, we're, we're talking about still hundreds of kids, are we not? So the tent city is a 
somewhat related, but mostly not concern. A lot of kids, remember, who come in, a lot of kids who are in government custody are kids who came across the border without parents. That's especially true of teenagers, which are the kids in the tent city in Tornillo. Uh, The number of kids in government custody has skyrocketed during and even after the the widespread family separation policy. And that's not due to family separation primarily. It's primarily due to the fact that there have been changes in how people how relatives and sponsors are vetted who, you know, the kids could be turned over. And in particular, the government is now taking fingerprints of anybody in the household of a relative who steps forward to kind of take a child into custody and will turn them over to ICE. And there have been a few dozen cases of relatives getting arrested by ICE for immigration violations uh, that ICE was flagged to because they stepped forward to take care of this kid. So it's created a big chilling effect where parents have or not parents, not sometimes parents, but often uncles, cousins, that kind of thing, who would be the closest relative and the best person to step forward and say, this child is in government custody, but I can take care of them while their immigration case is pending, uh, are instead going, well, if I step forward, I could get deported. Why isn't it just best for the child to stay in custody? So they have this big capacity problem uh, that's led them to, you know, try to expand this big tent city in Tornillo where they're keeping mostly, you know, over a thousand immigrant teens that could be expanded to 3000. But it's also this, you know, much longer term problem of if the current setup is we're going to expect a relative in the U.S. to step forward, but if you're a relative in the U.S., you might be arrested and anybody, deported. That's it, not going no, no, to no. Does it, solve. Right. It's it not going to end at any point. Yeah. And if anybody in that household, if they finger every, and, and fingerprint everyone in that household, and if anybody in that household may not yes. have legal papers, then yeah, it's, then the whole thing falls apart. So Right. And, of course, but, bear in mind did, that they may be restarting widespread family separation. There was a report on Friday from The Washington Post that in response to what has been a continued or a, a, a big spike, actually much the number of families coming into the U.S. is actually much higher than it was when family separation was in mm-hmm. effect. Uh, that the government is the White House is kind of panicking over this. And one of the options they're considering is forcing parents to decide between staying with their kids in detention for months or years, as long as it takes to process their case, uh, which is currently a right they have to actively waive under the Flores settlement, or forcing them to be separated from their child so that the child can be taken out of immigration detention and sent to HHS custody. That, you know, we don't know what kind of phase that plan is in. It is not at all clear that that would serve as a deterrent, contra to what Trump has said. There is pretty substantial evidence that the last go round of family separation didn't work, that the pilot of family separation didn't work in terms of deterrence. But it's, you know, as long as they can't get numbers back down to where they were in early 2017 when numbers were absurdly low. They appear to think that there are things they have to do to crack down on people coming. So, in. so Donald Trump did say, I think it was uh, end of last week, and maybe that's what you're referring to. As I recall, um, that if families know they're going to be separated, right. they won't come here. Yes, that is. Which was his way of, to me, announcing the policy is still in place. It's going to continue in place. We think it's working. Uh, and uh, nothing's going to change, right? Right. I mean, the 
line taken by others in his White House and what is, evidence it, is the there? reason that people are coming in now is because we stopped it, right? Like it's they appear to believe that, but but actually, if you look at records from while family separation was in widespread effect in May of this year, you know you'll see. DHS officials going, okay, it's going to be two to three weeks, and then we're going to start seeing drops in the numbers, and then two to three weeks pass, and they're like, uh, maybe it's going to take thirty days, and then and and the numbers still remain remarkably consistent throughout the duration of that. There's just there have been you know any actual analysis that you look at, especially things that control for existing seasonal patterns in when people want to come through Mexico or not indicate that it's not really about what's going to happen to you once you cross the border. If there's a chance that you or your child is going to be allowed to stay in the United States uh, for a sustained period of time, or if there's a chance that they're going to get actual legal status, it isn't the calculus that they're making is an informed one. They know that there is a chance that they're going to be in these terrible conditions, and it's still better than what they would be leaving. I have to ask you quickly, before the end of the year, uh, are we going to see any money to build the wall? About 30 seconds. Uh, Donald Trump is going to throw several temper, temper tantrums. It's not clear whether Republicans are going to actually want to spend calcul- political capital on it or not. They haven't yet, right? Nah, they I mean, have had no interest yet. Right, yeah. I can't see it happening before the end of the year. You're right. He'll say, I'll never sign another bill that doesn't have money for the wall in it. And then they'll send him a bill that doesn't have money for the wall in it, but it has money for everything else. And right. then he'll just sign it. And throw a temper tantrum again. All right. Hey, Darius, really good of you to come in. Thanks so much. Thank uh, you. You can follow Darius' work, great work on uh, the, the immigration issues and all of our other good friends at Vox at VoxVox.com. Matt Fuller joins us from HuffPost as a friend of Bill. Coming up next. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yeah, the Saudis murder somebody. Ah, who cares? It's just like Brett Kavanaugh, guilty until proven innocent. That's the problem. So says Donald Trump. There we are, folks. Um, politics in the age of Donald Trump. What do you say? It's Wednesday, October 17. Hello, 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 and welcome uh, to the Bill Press Show. Here we go, coming to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and joining you everywhere in this great land of ours, in fact, uh, everywhere around the planet, online, on the radio, on television, with all the news of the day, which we will cover over the next hour, uh, with the help of a good friend from HuffPost, uh, Matt Fuller, joining in as a friend of Bill. Hello, Matt. It's good to see you. Good to see you. When's Congress ever coming back? Who knows? <laughs> no, they, yeah. they, they come back uh, <laughs> af- right after the election. Um, 
So we'll for the some. so-called uh, dead ducks, this lame duck, lame duck, lame duck, dead duck. Might as well be dead duck, lame yeah. duck. Oh no, <laughs> it's even worse than the lame duck. Um, no, they, yeah, they'll deal. Some we of, killed them. We killed yeah. the duck. They'll uh, they'll deal with leadership elections. They'll still have some looming government funding to to take care of. Uh, we'll see how that goes. This has always been. Part of the conservative plan is, uh, you know, they didn't get that wall. Oh, so. yeah, got to get that money for the wall, which we were just talking with Darrell about. And, you know, maybe cram through a few more judges. Yeah, we got yeah. that. We got some judges coming probably too, yeah. But we might have a new cast of characters then. It's going to be uh, interesting. One of the things we've got to talk about with Matt and with all of you. Uh, and we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, send us your comments. You're very much part of the program. Send us your comments on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. Matt and I will be joined by uh, Maria Urbino, who is the political director for the great group Indivisible, tell us about some of the important house races that they're they're following and not following. <laughs> they are fueling, if you will. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. It was midnight last night. There were hundreds of people in line in Canada for... Recreational marijuana. I was going to say the Canadian Ballet. Not the Canadian (laughs) Ballet, Bill. Recreational marijuana is now legal in Canada. They are the second second country after Uruguay to legalize possession and use of recreational (laughs) cannabis. Again, some of these dispensaries opened up. Uh, specifically on the on the eastern coast, Newfoundland, they had the dispensary open up at midnight last night. I like the new flag that they took away the uh, maple leaf and they put the. Oh, that would be a great idea. You know, cannabis. <laughs> free idea. They should make T-shirts like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but literally, literally, hundreds of people got in line at some of these dispensaries because they wanted to buy legal weed in Canada as soon as it was available. So if you're in Canada today, you can go buy your recreational pot. How about that? Uh, that's, that's about the only way I could tolerate Canada, survive Canada. <laughs> oh, no. There. oh, no. Oh, no. I'd have to be high. <laughs> Bill, I've got some sad news. You know, we don't oh. normally do obituaries of this, but a friend of the show has passed away. Uh-oh. Dennis Hoff, the owner of the Bunny Ranch, is no longer with us. He passed away. He just celebrated his 72nd no, I birthday. Was, wait, I was invited so to his was birthday we party. Invita- we got invitations to his birthday <laughs> In fact, party. Uh, Tucker Carlson and I interviewed him once on the spin room, I think, at CNN. And I got that invitation. I sent it to Tucker and I said, let's go. Yeah. And Tucker said, damn it, I'm going to be on my book tour. I can't, book tour oh, I can't no. go. Well, oh. he is no longer with us. He, he was also running for office, oh, by the way, shoot. in Nevada. Uh, yeah, 72 yeah. years old. Friends say that at his birthday party, he went back to his room with a prostitute, and he died in his sleep. So, I mean... He didn't die in his sleep. Well, <laughs> well, the, the next morning... He, is that they what you call to, it? <laughs> the next morning when they went in to go and, and wake him up, they found him it, dead. It, so, Dennis Hoff... Is no longer with us. He's been he, on the show several times. We've had him on yeah, the show. Yeah, we've had him on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. God, he went the way of Nelson Rockefeller. Yeah, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. What a way to go. Uh, that's sad. Yeah, it's a bummer. Call Tucker today. <laughs> Memorial service. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. 
Okay, if you didn't get your Mega Millions ticket or your Powerball ticket, get out there right now and buy one. There's uh, over a billion dollars on the line between tonight and Friday night. Uh, I can't wait till this <laughs> or finish this show so I can go out and get my tickets. Hello, everybody. On a Wednesday, October 17, and the best part is if you uh, follow the advice of Jared Kushner and follow uh, his uh, strategy, you won't have to pay any taxes <laughs> on any of it. The more money you make, the fewer, less taxes you pay, says Donald Trump and uh, say Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. Uh, as we were saying, this is the Bill Press Show, believe it or not, on Wednesday, October 17. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show, on the radio out on WCPT in Chicago, and on television on Free Speech TV. Joining us here as a friend of Bill this hour, Matt Fuller from uh, HuffPost, uh, covers Congress and all other good stuff for HuffPost. Uh, so, Matt, what what are the Republicans going to do about this huge budget deficit? You oh, know, they you know, hate deficits. Oh, they oh, hate them so yeah. much. And, <laughs> and no, uh, these Democrats always roll up these big deficits, and it's only the these, Republicans liberal who balance the budget, that, right? Know. Yeah. It's funny um, that— Do you remember the day when Republicans used to care about the I, budget I very deficit? much do. I remember—you I, know, I, in some ways, I, I, did fall for, I did fall for that because there was— there were a lot of conservatives who who talked very tough about deficits and said, you know, we've got to get our fiscal house in order. And, um, you know, we were watching deficits rising for quite a while under Obama. And that wasn't necessarily Obama's fault. That was we've had, you know, wars for more than a decade and we inherited a, a pretty bad economy from from George W. Bush. But um, and they, they did sort of get those deficits a little bit in order. They've reduced them from over a trillion dollars. Cut it more than in half, uh, under under five hundred billion dollars for a while, and then uh, you know Paul Ryan took over actually because this 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 trend actually didn't just start with Donald Trump. Yeah, um, Paul Ryan, the you, you might remember who you know made his uh, his whole thing the cutting the budget. And, total, total. Um, that, you know, it was Mister Fiscal Conservative. Mr. Fiscal Conservative. Uh, suddenly he becomes Speaker, um, and we just see that sort of drop by the wayside that. Um, you know, rising Paul deficit. Ryan of all people. Paul Ryan, right? I mean, it was a lot of this is um, military spending. Uh, Republicans again, just uh, in the order of preferences, they all say, "Okay, well, let's take care of the military first. Meanwhile, the Pentagon's never been uh, audited. We've never had a, a, a Pentagon audit in our in our lives. Um, they continue to fail. It's actually uh, they're in violation of the law at this point uh, for not having an audit. Uh, but Republicans instinctively know. That oh the you know the defense department needs more money we need more money for this and it's it's you know we had those you might remember the budget caps right we 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 and you yeah, can be forgiven yeah. for not because we we don't live by those those rules really <laughs> um, but yeah Republicans just spend over that amount of money and uh, Democrats as a sort of ransom for that they they do extract some concessions on the domestic side because they're also saying. Well, wait a minute. If you're not going to live by the, you know, the Budget Control Act on the defense uh, side that you yeah. guys set in 2011, we're not going to live by that for domestic. So uh, everyone's sort of spending willy nilly. And meanwhile, uh, you have this tax bill, which has has cut revenue. It's it's very clear. It's it's going to cut revenue. It's not just this year. It's going to be forever at this point. Um, at least for the 10 years that we have for for the in individual side. And uh, if the Bush tax cuts taught us anything, that we will once again. We're not going to raise tax. Politicians don't like to raise taxes, so uh, I, I I would assume that those are 
here to stay. Well, the other myth here, one myth is that Republicans are fiscal conservatives. The other is that which a lot of people fell for again this time, even though this myth has been proven untrue way back to the days of Ronald Reagan, that if you cut taxes, the economy will rebound right. and you'll actually get more money than you did before because of a booming economy. The tax is, cuts pay for themselves. Tax cuts pay for themselves and more. Yeah, we, and I mean, it has never worked. No. and, and Never. And in fact, I remember asking Republicans this time around, um, and, I, and I just took the concrete example of the 2001-2003 Bush tax yeah. cuts and said, did those tax cuts pay for themselves? And without fail, the only Republican, and this is funny, the only Republican who said they did not pay for themselves was Mark Meadows, the Freedom Caucus chairman. Everyone else said, yes, they paid for themselves. I got into a long argument with Kevin Kramer, uh, who's running for Senate in North Dakota, who was, you know, I was like, well, th- that's not, it's not true. I mean, it's, <laughs> this, this, yeah. This, yeah. this isn't a matter of opinion. And he's like, well, in fact, it is a, it is a matter of, of, of fact that they did pay for them. They more than pay for themselves. And this is sort of the the Republican lie is that, uh, oh, and and they cover this a little bit by saying, well, if we hadn't had this war, uh, we well, would have had this yeah, booming economy or, right. or the economy would have totally tanked and we needed those tax cuts to recover some. And of course, there is some, um, there's some recovery of what, what you spend with increased economic activity, but it's not enough to make up for uh, what you've lost in, in the revenue side. And I, I forget the exact numbers, yeah. but the fact is that George Bush came into office with a surplus. Right. right. Thanks to Small him. surplus, but yeah. From, Ronald, from, from Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton yeah. balanced the budget, left a small surplus. George Bush came in, hit those tax cuts, and we were back into deficit spending by the end of the year. Right. Very quickly. And it was a lot of it was, was defense spending fueled, but a lot, a lot of the other bit was you might remember people getting tax those those refund oh, yeah. checks. Oh yes, yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, and 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 a traditional measure here, I think that a lot of economists sort of go by is that you might make up for one third of the whatever mm-hmm. you spend on the tax cuts with increased. I mean, they basically say it's increased GDP growth, which then you get more taxes that way. But again, I had Republicans who said, "Oh, I don't want the tax cuts just just to pay for themselves. I want the tax cuts to." Uh, I want growth. That's a I, I, right. I can yeah. hear that that line in my head from Dave Bratt, the you know the economics professor who was certain that the tax cuts had paid for themselves when it's very clear they they never did. Right. Um, so uh, I saw that. Um, by the way, Greenberg yesterday came out with a poll. So the, these tax cuts, of course, were going to be the number one issue that Republicans were going to run on in 2018 right. and win on in 2018. Right. It's going to, they're just going to sell these tax cuts, sell these tax cuts. That's why they forced them through. You and I talked about the last December. That was their mm-hmm. motivation. Uh, Greenberg shows today that American people, uh, by a margin of 12, a 52% disapprove of the Republican tax cuts, 40% approve of them. So it's like sort of like the American people have gotten the message, this ain't helping us. Right. No, I, I th- I've heard this from a number of Democratic candidates, too, who say, <laughs> I go in a room and I, and I just ask, who here thinks that this tax cut was, was you know, designed for the poor or, or who for them? Here, or the middle class. Who or here middle benefited class, right, from it? Right. I'm sure if you said raise your hands, have you right. benefited from it? I mean, so corporations received a 40% tax cut, right? They were going fr- uh, from, I, what's it, uh, dropped in almost in half or... Uh, 35 to 21, I think, is that? Yeah, I forget the exact number. Uh, I know it's at so, 21. The corporate right, tax rate yeah. is now at 21%. I think you're right, 35 to 21. So I think that'd be a 40% or, or I'm not a math major. Me, Matt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's about, I think that's about 40%. Um, 
Um, so uh, people know that they didn't get their tax burdens cut by 40%. This was uh, primarily for corporations. Absolutely. And it's permanent, as you say, right. for the corporations. For corporations, right. And that, and that, that also reveals um, you know, their true uh, preferences and uh, who they were really looking out for. They didn't make the individual side permanent. They made the corporation side permanent. Uh, so and and again, this is just not something that's paying for itself. We're seeing this now um, with the deficits are the numbers are coming in right now. Uh, I, I believe the Trump the Trump budget said that there was going to be a deficit of four hundred and forty billion, something to that effect. And uh, we got the numbers yesterday. I think it's seven hundred and seventy nine billion for the the deficit, and mm-hmm. we're coming up to over a trillion. And and we also we looked at the projections, <laughs> and they're right on the money with with the spending side. I think they they said the spending would be. Around 4.1 uh, trillion, but it's the revenue side that's not coming in. And again, th- by no measure are, are these tax cuts paying for themselves. Uh, they're not bringing in the revenue that Republicans promised they would. So uh, you mentioned David Bratt uh, yeah. as one economics <laughs> professor who uh, who um, d- didn't understand or wasn't willing to admit the truth about the tax cuts. Uh, he he's the guy who knocked off uh, Eric. Eric Kanner. Eric Kanner got a little fame for that. And now he himself uh, has a pretty tough race, right? Abigail Spanberger, this former CIA operative. um, This is Virginia's 7th district right around the Richmond suburbs. Uh, It's it's certainly a race that Democrats are looking to pick up. I I have a podcast here myself, uh, just a a short four-episode thing. We're going to profile this particular race. And uh, we're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, the Democratic year of the woman – it uh, certainly seems like Abigail Spanberger is an attractive candidate for a lot of women. Um, you know, look at look at who the real resistance is, and it seems like it's moms who are watching MSNBC, um, and that's exactly someone who you know Spanberger might uh, appeal to, as well as people who say, "Hey, I like I like a lot of her national security background." Uh, I watched the debate; I think it was uh, not last mm-hmm. night, but the night before, um, and she just you know demonstrated that. Brat was sort of misrepresenting her her record, and uh, certainly didn't combat a lot of the, um, you know, the lines from Brat that um, she's uh, he ba- she basically just led everyone to believe that she'd be more of a moderate, I think, than um, you know the, this liberal that he's presented her as someone who's who's going to champion Medicare for all. She's not. Well, it seems that and, from uh, from what I I didn't watch the debate. But reading your your accounts and, and and hearing from others, that he had one, his basic number one issue was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny that it's not the ta- it's not really the tax cut bill, and and I would say that that um, Dave Brett is happy to run on the tax cuts, and he's happy to to give that line and talk about deficits and GDP growth, and you know there's sort of a, a comfort zone for him. But 21 times he mentioned the name Nancy Pelosi, and every time he did it <laughs> in an hour debate, in an hour and a half debate, uh, and it, it would it just if you look at 21 times, that's a very forced number. You have to really be trying to yeah. tie your opponent to yeah. Nancy Pelosi, and um, every time he did it, eventually there was just groans in the audience, just sort of laughs. And you know we we hear a lot about how uh, Republicans are running against Nancy Pelosi. Um, and how she's such a toxic person, and I think there's there's some element of that, certainly some element in in a lot of districts. But I think there's also a, might be a fatigue with voters, just you know, Republicans constantly harping on Nancy Pelosi, and it's like Donald Trump is president. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is the minority leader of the House, right? Uh, yeah. Democrats what power control, does right, she exa- have? Exactly. 
um, it, it's it's almost comical that you know we we don't talk about Trump and yet we talk about Nancy Pelosi so much. Um, and I think voters might be seeing through this a little bit that you know you, you can only use this boogie woman for so long before people start going, you know what? Like uh, this is just a, a ruse, really. Uh, has uh, what's her name? Abig- Abigail Spanberger. Abigail Spanberger. Uh, has she said she would support Nancy Pelosi for speaker? She hasn't said she support. She hasn't. She's. I don't believe she's on the list of people who said uh, she would not support. She sort of. There's a there's a very easy line for for Democrats, which is something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't know who's running, and uh, that's I'm not focused on that election. Um, you know, I, I'm gonna let's win we this have, election first and go from there. We uh, have heard that line. Uh, here in the studio from several Democratic right, members right. of Congress, and I would and I would say that that's a little bit of a mealy mouthed answer. It is to, my, to which my response is, well, you know, she's running, right? Exactly, <laughs> and this and this was by the, that's exactly what Chris Matthews did with Danny O'Connor uh, in Ohio. Was you know she's running, you know, well, I, I, we need new leadership, and then he just pressed he pressed him to the effect of you know if it's the choice between Kevin McCarthy, who we also know is running, and Nancy Pelosi, and this is, seems to be what the choice would. Yeah, pretty much. Be. Yeah. Maybe Steve Scalise. And, right. Who you're going to vote for. Right. right. I mean, and then and if you're the deciding vote and he basically admitted, OK, yeah, in that situation, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and that might have actually hurt him in that race. I mean, he was I think he lost that election by about a thousand votes. And that that clip, that one minute clip played uh, relentlessly uh, in in Ohio that at the very end of this the race. And if you're saying it didn't move a thousand votes, you know, I think that that's uh Questionable. So I do think there's an effect with Nancy Pelosi. I do think that this is tough for Democrats, uh, but it's a very easy answer if if it's really that hard for you, which is you just, you just say I'm not supporting her, and you actually mean it. And yeah. uh, you know, for the Democrats who have done that that line, uh, I'm thinking Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania. Uh, he had a debate last night with Keith Rothfuss, who's also a, a member of Congress. He's uh, Lamb is moving his district because mm-hmm. because of the Pennsylvania redistricting. Um, He's basically saying, well, I don't support Nancy Pelosi. This came up in his special election. He was the only Democrat to win right. uh, during these special elections under Donald Trump, I guess we could say. And it's just not an issue in his race as much because uh, he's, you know, he's very clearly, and everyone knows, he's not going to support Nancy Pelosi. In fact, Keith Rothfuss had the opportunity in this debate n- numerous times to bring up Pelosi, and instead he, he pivoted to Maxine Waters. Right. So they're going to go with some boogie woman, but it might not be as effective as Pelosi. Uh, and I know that Lamb has said... You know, for a lot of his voters, people do ask him the question and, uh, you know, they want to hear the answer first. And then from there, they'll hear the rest of what he has to say. Right. Um, We'll be talking some more house races uh, in the next half hour with Maria Urbino from uh, Indivisible. Um, But I wanted to ask, I talked to you about one Senate race that's getting certainly a lot of attention. Last night, the second big debate between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. uh, Cruz goes after uh, Beto, of course, because he's a Democrat and he might have voted for some sound energy policies, maybe uh, energy conservation or some tougher crackdown on the oil companies for Ted Cruz, of course. That's the mortal sin in Texas. Uh, here's Senator Cruz. Let me say, if you work in energy, if you work in oil and gas... Congressman O'Rourke's record on this is extreme. He didn't just vote for a $10 a barrel tax on oil. He's also voted for aggressive regulations of fracking, aggressive regulations of exporting liquefied natural gas. Oh, man. Ted aggressive Cruz, Ted regulation. Ted Cruz has this great way of saying yeah. things that are supposed to be uh, negative towards better O'Rourke, but actually make him sound... <laughs> 
pretty great. Sounds pretty good to me. He's <laughs> cool as hell. I didn't know his record was that good. <laughs> but uh, it, it was interesting the way Beto came back, uh, taking a pretty tough line here. It sounds a little almost Trumpian. Uh, Senator Cruz is not going to be honest with you. He's going to make up positions and votes that I've never held or have ever taken. He's dishonest. It's why the president called him Lying Ted, and it's why the nickname stuck, because it's true. You know, no one Lying Ted. No one has mastered the, like, smarmy laugh while being attacked oh, better yeah. than Ted Cruz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, while he's just pummeling him, he just has this terrible grin on his face. And he's Smithers. Laughing. <laughs> yes, it's, it's exactly it does have it. a Mr. Burns quality to it in some ways. <laughs> Interesting race, though. And, and as, as moments everybody's pointing out, Cruz is... I don't know, five, six, whatever yeah. points ahead. I've seen as many as nine. Yeah. Uh, but O'Rourke is a phenomenal candidate and has raised more money than any candidate in history. Right. Yeah. No. I, I mean, he's a he's a phenomenal candidate in a in a very tough state to win. Uh, I think the polling really shows Cruz hovering right around fifty, fifty two, and yeah. Beto is sort of stuck at this forty five number. Uh, and you know, it it does depend on who turns out for that election. Uh, certainly, Beto is trying to get as many Hispanic votes as he can, and that's really the, might be the key in Texas. Uh, is turning out that vote. We're not sure mm-hmm. where that's going to stand, but he's certainly proven that he can excite the Democratic base, uh, that he can raise money. He can raise money like no one else, and and part of that obviously is that his counterpart is Ted Cruz, and I think people look at that race and go, "Oh my God!" You know, they're uh, licking their chops that this would be such a swing in the Senate between Beto O'Rourke and and Ted Cruz. Uh, But, yeah, I think uh, this is a very tough race for for him to win. Still a chance, though, and I don't discount that at at all. Uh, And a phenomenal candidate in his little van there, he has uh, driven to, driven himself to, uh, every one of Texas, I think it's 295 counties or something. Uh, He points out that Ted Cruz uh, has visited every county but not in Texas. Uh, every county, here he is. You've got somebody who left the state of Texas uh, within a year of being elected to represent all of us to run for another office. Hasn't been to all the counties of Texas, but has been to all 99 of Iowa. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. stark contrast, I guess, yeah. Right. Uh, and he did. Remember, he did run. and Because one of the things that Ted Cruz says that Beto O'Rourke is just using this as a stepping stone to running for president Says a man who, who ran for president. Who ran for president right. two years ago? His government shutdown was his, his stepping stone to, to running for president, right? Right. So uh, it, it, before he was reelected, he ran ran for uh, for president, and uh, uh, and until he ran into the buzzsaw of uh, uh, of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, speaking of buzzsaws <laughs> or bone saws, <laughs> oh boy! Whoa! How's that for a transition? Uh, it. it it's just hard to to fathom how the president of the United States could leap to the defense of Saudi Arabia in this particular um, situation with it, with the disappearance and it looks like the cold-blooded murder and dismemberment of his body of Jamal Khashoggi. What are Republicans? How do Republicans in Congress deal with this? So th- this is one of those situations where Republicans. Of course, they're not here this week. Course, so right. Probably. And, and and so so we get this is you know very similar situation with a lot of Trump scandals, which is it's met with silence. If Republicans aren't here and they don't have to a- answer questions about it from reporters stalking the halls of the Capitol, they generally don't answer any 
quite, they're not, most of them aren't, aren't issuing a statement on, on this. Uh, they're so not they gonna, don't volunteer a statement. They don't volunteer and a statement. And probably they're hard to reach, right? If you hard call to their reach, district office you know, or whatever. And, and this isn't maybe a, an issue that voters are, are really asking about. I think voters still care about issues like health care and the economy, um, taxes maybe. But uh, certainly it's a, an issue that the National Press Corps would be asking about. And because they're not here, there's really no accountability for them. I mean, I think some local press might be asking questions about it, but uh, again, you can sort of get out of this with mealy mouth statements that, you know, oh well, uh, you know, I think you just don't you just don't disapprove of what the president said. You just sort of say where you stand, and I think that that's really the the playbook for Republicans all along. It's just been, um, you know, try to avoid directly chastising the president. You can again just state where you stand. Uh, and, and they they'll be happily tell you that. Well, I don't. I'm not going to you know break with the president. I'll I'll tell you where I stand. And, yeah. And that's sort of the only one that acceptable. I've heard say anything critical is Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. I, I might have missed some of the others, but Marco Rubio saying this should not be business as usual. Steve Mnuchin should not be going to this summit, economic yeah, summit. Yeah. That uh, Davos in the desert, as they call it. Right. Uh, right. Jeff Flake the also said the, the same thing. Did he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I yeah, I think um, there's some senators who certainly have even that issues. is pretty mild. It's very mild, right? You're not saying that, hey, uh, let's investigate Donald Trump's finances with Saudi Arabia. He's 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 claimed that he's made hundreds of millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia. He's still taking money, uh, right? We have this little open uh, checkbook here that it's called the Trump Hotel that uh, Saudi Arabians uh, can come come in and uh, book rooms or whatever. And where they've uh, they've staged several, uh, several events. Several right, right. The embassy has sponsored several events there. Oh, yeah, no, this is their place to go in Washington Right, now. right. And he also has other business dealings with Saudi Arabia. So if, um, there's no real investigation about that. There's no one who's, who's to this at all. Um, it's just uh, business as usual with, again, Republicans saying, well, the, the very mildly, you know, well, I support an investigation. Or two, clips on, two clips on that point. First of all, Jonathan Carl from ABC News last night is pointing out that this connection between Donald Trump and the Saudis long precedes his time in the White House. This is a relationship that goes back a long time for Donald Trump. You remember it? In 1991, when he was in financial trouble and he had to sell his yacht, he sold it to the Saudis. Mm. It was a Saudi prince, big part of the investment group, that bought the Plaza Hotel from him in 1995. In 2001, they reportedly bought an entire floor of the Trump World Hotel in New York. So the Saudis have a long history with Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, and then Donald Trump in 2015... Uh, acknowledges that his ATM was Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me. They spend $40 million, $50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. Yeah. The more money they give me, the better I like them. Right. And that's exactly how he thinks, too. Right? I mean, he's, he's yeah. very explicit yeah. with these things. Yeah. That's exactly his mindset. As he said in his first response to the disappearance of Khashoggi was, well, you know, we got this arms deal with the Saudis, so we got to be careful here, right? Everybody else won this arms deal, but we got it. And boy, if we're too critical of them, they could buy those arms from, I don't know, France or something or well, UK. You, know, you, know, you can hide behind that to some extent when you're president. You know, you could say, like, this is good for America, it's good for the country. But once it becomes clear and, and much more naked that this really is just all about your personal interests, then it gets a little tougher, <laughs> or should anyway. Should yeah, because uh, yeah, this is 
this is something that's clearly worthy of investigation, right? This this could be open corruption, and yet it's just something that passes. You know, this this news cycle will, will turn over into the next one, and it'll just sort of disappear. Uh, and, and and meanwhile, you know, there's a, a journalist who might be dead, or we very likely is dead, um, and was killed. You know, right there in in Turkey, and um, it just seems like this is something. Uh, worthy of investigation that will just never really be if, if you just take the bare facts, okay, the guy, we know he walked into the embassy. We know that 15 people, including a forensic doctor with a bone saw, fly in that day from Saudi Arabia to Istanbul and are at the consulate and at the ambassador's residence right next door, the consul general's residence right next door. And we know the guy has not been seen since. Yeah. Yeah, it's very clear. This, I, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, maybe not conclusive. He, he, cho- right, he but- chooses to believe them, right? This is his his, his also defenses. This is the same as Brett Kavanaugh. That yeah, right. You know, the shift from uh, proven until in, innocent until proven so guilty. So for us to to hold them responsible in any way, Donald Trump says we're treating them just like we treated Brett Kavanaugh. We're treating them guilty until proven innocent, right? And he said that. Yeah, word for word, it's yeah. like Kavanaugh, and, and that seems like equating a, the two. Right, it seems like a total gaffe to anyone who you know is is a normal person. But uh, I think that a partisan hears that, and they retreat into their normal foxholes of you know I was with Brett Kavanaugh on this, and I'm with the president on on ninety percent of issues, and and it and it, I think it actually does move the ball forward for him. Like it, that again, that seems like a very stupid thing to say, but I actually think it's extremely strategic. I don't think it's something that he just shot off. You know. The tip of his tongue. I think that that was something he had an actual conversation to, to with. To me, people. the fact that his base would follow him down that rabbit down hole. that rabbit hole proves how totally corrupt and morally, uh, I don't know, depraved depraved his base is. Right. I mean, no standards whatsoever. Uh, and I wonder how Brett Kavanaugh feels about being compared to a cold-blooded <laughs> murderer. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't. If, if, if that's the stand, could, if that's the standard of innocence, so it's not looking so great for for, for Brett Kavanaugh either. Maybe uh, he could sue Donald Trump for defamation. <laughs> we'll see how well that goes. <laughs> All right, quick break here. We'll be back. Matt Falter stays with us as a friend of Bill Maria Urbino, or Urbino, sorry, from um, Indivisible, joining us to take a look at some of the key house races that we should be following and you should be involved in as well here on this Wednesday edition of the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Wednesday, October 17, uh, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. Coming to you uh, all over this great land of ours on the radio, on television, and online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And don't forget, we've been telling you about an exciting new opportunity Uh, a new website called leftisright.com. You're kind of one-stop shop for progressive voices uh, between now and the midterms. There you will find back-to-back our show, uh, The Bill Press Show, Stephanie Miller, Stephanie Miller Show, and Tom Hartman, uh, all three lined up there on leftisright.com. You can either go right to the website or download the app PVN, Political Voices Network, uh, that way we've got, again, one click, and you're there uh, and got the best of progressive talk uh, for until the midterms and beyond. Here, taking a look at the political landscape uh, today, particularly moving into its uh, 
one day short of three weeks before the midterms. Mm-hmm. Matt Fuller with us from HuffPost as a friend of Bill this entire hour. Matt, uh, thanks for hanging around. Uh, we're joined by Maria Urbino, who is the political director for the great Indivisible, right after the Trump um, uh, uh, campaign and the Trump, <clears throat> do we call it a victory or whatever, ascension to the to the Oval Office in uh, November 2016. Uh, groups like Our Revolution, Run for Something, and maybe the biggest and the best known of all, Indivisible popped up, a real grassroots organization to change the direction of American politics. I don't think anybody's been out there earlier or stronger than the Indivisible. So congratulations and thank you for your good work. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, really, it's all of the local groups across the country, but we're really lucky to be organizing. How many people with them. signed up or that you consider members of Indivisible? So we have folks in, uh, gosh, nearly every congressional district that are organizing very locally um, and in every state. And uh, you know, I keep hearing, Matt, I guess you do too, of candidates who've been recruited by Indivisible. Yes. You know, you haven't just said, Okay, we're here to help you if you run. No, we're out there. You ought to run. Right. right. Yeah. If you look at folks like Dana Balter in New York, Luba in New York, um, they're all they all started their indivisible groups um, that and were organizing summer town halls and sort of had this really amazing leadership arc of voter activists now running for Congress um, and really drawing a lot of attention. Dana Balter is really interesting. She's in Syracuse. Um, she's New York 24. She. Um, All right, let's start with that. Yeah, let's start with Dana. The ones that you're, that you're Great. Uh, involved in. Um, Matt, let's take a look at these. You know some of these mm-hmm. that you've been covering too. So Dana Balter, Syracuse. Yes. So she's really interesting, and she is so, so impressive. Um, you know, she came up more as a grassroots organizer and an academic, and in her primary, she actually was going up against the DCCC and their candidate. <sighs> right, um, yeah. And, and she won with a really strong grassroots That's model. happened in several districts. Um, in, in Harley's, um, our folks, Harley Ruta, all the way out in California, California yeah. 48, they got involved early. Um, the local indivisible groups designed a really, really great and I think thorough model for an, a local endorsement process using the in, uh, endorsement guide that we published. And they got in early and vetted him and vetted that he was indeed a grassroots supporter and was indeed progressive because that question came up a lot in his primary. Um, and in, so in that race was an example, the California 48 race was an example in which the DCCC followed the lead of grassroots people. and. Um, made the right choice because he won, um, despite a lot of fears around California's um, jungle primary. Do you time. have a rule that uh, you have to follow the Bernie Sanders agenda to get an endorsement of Indivisible? We do not. No, we have a rule that we follow our local grassroots um, excitement. And so, for example, the, our national endorsement program does not consider a candidate unless they've received a local endorsement um, from their local Indivisible or uh, groups. So that's really important for us. The nomination has to begin at the local level, and then they can nominate a candidate for national consideration. It's been uh, it's an interesting twist, isn't it? And yeah, particularly to see the DCCC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to not to be the guy defending the DCCC here, but certainly you know they they are always looking at these races from the perspective of. Right, let's try to get the best candidate, and, and if it, I think you know, you saw in, in California where um, they they okay, well the the candidate here who seems to have excited the left base might be the strongest candidate, and you know uh, they're they're willing to pivot, I think, a little bit too. So too often that they have been in the past, it's been top down, 
Mm-hmm. We decide who's best for your district, not right. you. Right. And they tend to go with the establishment candidates, usually somebody maybe who's worked their way up. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. I find exciting about so many of these names and these in- candidates this year across the board is a lot of them are people who never ran for office before. That's right. Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We keep coming back to talk about her, but... That's know, right. She just said, "No, I'm going to run." Yeah, and I and I think Matt's uh, note here is fair, and and it, and it really isn't just the DCCC that gets in there and tries to sort of pick early favorites. The entire party apparatus, from national down to very local, engage in a way in which they sort of want to be the folks that pick. And what we center in our strategy, and also what we center around groups and divisible groups, is that you live here. This is your community. And you're organizing in it now, and you should have a say in who you want to represent. Absolutely. You. And this, this, I'll just say that um, this sort of has a, a marker of, of the two ways you can sort of win, right? The DCCC's general thought is let's get someone who's a moderate who can kind of sort of split the difference, might appeal to independents and some Republicans, and maybe they'll, you know, eke out a victory. There's an- another school of thought here, and I think that this is maybe the individual thought, which is let's get someone who's on the left who's going to excite the base, mm-hmm. who's going to bring out new voters, mm-hmm. and let's just win that way. And that might, and we're going to sort of test that that version of, uh, you know, we'll test the theory. I think in a, in a number of districts this this cycle. Now another another factor that influences all of these, and again, there are more of these races we want to talk about, uh, and more about these two that we just mentioned. Um, but the New York Times uh, and Politico yesterday had a big story about how Democrats have just run way ahead of Republicans in dollars, in fundraising, mm-hmm. which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm former Democratic state chair of California. We were always behind the curve. We raised as much money as we could, could never compete with the, with the Republicans. And now, so a New York Times adding this morning, they looked at the 60 69, sorry, most competitive House races, Democrats have raised a total of $46 million from small donors. This Mm -hmm. is the, not PACs, Mm -hmm. not corporations, this is the Bernie Sanders model, small donors. $46 million, Republicans, $15 million Mm -hmm. in those 69 House races. That's incredible. Doesn't mean they win every one of them, but it certainly... Yeah, it does more than level the playing field. The only thing I'll say is you have congressional leadership fund, which is the Paul Ryan aligned uh, super PAC here. That uh, I know that I don't know their latest numbers, but I know they had raised over 130 million dollars, and they are. And the, I know right. that the Adelsons just gave them more money. Yeah, and they're certainly spending here too. So uh, the money where it's coming from is there's a, there's definitely a contrast, but. Republicans do have money in their in their own ways, but their money will not be as effective because the Democrats are going to be able to maybe if, if not dollar for dollar match right, them, right? You know, at least be really competitive. All, they'll be on the airwaves, yeah. and 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 people are giving. I, well, you tell me, but I, my impression is people are giving like there's this Act Blue I know site, right? Mm-hmm. The people are giving not just to their local candidate. People are identifying races all around the country that they hear about. That are pick up possible pickup seats and putting money into there. That's right, and I think to your larger point, the not so much the dollar for dollar, but the larger point is that the, this signals that enthusiasm gap, right? This signals that yes. people are actually behind these candidates; they're excited. I think a number that would be interesting to dig into is how much of that small dollar money is coming from in-district so that we can actually see what sort of base they're building there um, and how much of it is, you know, folks from out of district that are really excited that want to make sure that our candidates are competing 
um, with all of the resources that they have. Our, our indivisible groups actually in California 48 and Harley Ruda's district, when they p- designed their, endorse- their local endorsement, they looked at how much local money is he fundraising because they wanted to understand what kind of outreach um, he was having and what kind of impact he was having locally. And I think that that was a really great marker, right? They weren't just looking at, are you competitive because you're raising a ton of money? They mm-hmm. were looking at, do yeah. you have a base here and are you going to be able to carry them when right. it matters? So, um, um, Matt, Harley Ruda's opponent is... Um, <laughs> I don't know. No, it's California 48. Then who is it? Do you know? Uh, yes, it's. Um, sorry, I have to memorize so many of these. Isn't, it, isn't this Duncan Hunter? It is. No, yeah. no, that's that's no. Amar Campanajar. Oh, that's right. This oh. is. Sorry, I should have these memorized. Yeah. Um, here, I'll tell you. This. Right. Oh, is... this, that's right. Yeah, he's 50. I'm sorry. I, I that's what I right. was asking right. because I thought. Yeah. We can talk about Duncan Hunters too. Is Harley um, Ruda Mimi Walters? Maybe no. Sorry, I definitely should. Have I should know memorized. too. That's Katie Porter, I believe, is, is okay. Amy Walters. All right. Um, Rohrbacher. Oh, Dana oh, Rohrbacher. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> That's so right. Bad that we Dana Rohrbacher, who um, even the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee considers, um, if not toast, certainly uh, not in good shape because they have dropped him from their list of priorities. They have. They're not putting any more money into Rohrbacher's policy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Having him defend himself. Yeah. And he's having a hard time of it because of his ties with Russia, which he brags mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Putin's best friend in the mm-hmm. Congress, Dana Rohrbacher, right? Uh, Harvey Ru- Harley Ruda. Good shot there. Uh, now, uh, so uh, Dana Balter, how, how does that district look? It's a tough district. Um, it's definitely a place that I think folks are being cautious about how much they're supporting in this district. Uh, but again, I, I, the reason I point to Dana Balter is because fo- I think there is sort of a caution around the district, but she proved folks wrong in the primary. And I think she has really impressive grassroots base building and abilities that are going to show up on Election Day. So that's why I point to her, because she might be someone that's overlooked um, and mm-hmm. because she's a challenger, because she comes from the grassroots. But we see that as a pretty powerful combo. So now to California 50. <laughs> uh, and you, you know this guy well. Duncan Hunter, I, I, I do. Duncan Hunter Jr., we should say, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he's obviously he's been indicted for these uh, campaign fraud, basically, using his campaign funds as a piggy bank for years. Um, but he's running this campaign that is... So he's running, he's been indicted, but he's, he's running indicted. for re-election. Mm-hmm. Right, just, that's just fake news, and, you know, that's the Democrats. This is politically motivated... Um, and he's running this campaign where Amar Kampanajar, and he, he loves saying this name, uh, is basically a terrorist. I mean, he's not, it's not even basically, he's, he's very explicitly saying this. His, his father said this, uh, when they accused him, they said, this is like racism. This is Islamophobia. And he says, no, no, this is about terrorism. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you look at these ads, I mean, it's very openly suggesting that he's a security threat, mm-hmm. that uh, he can't be trusted with this information. That as a member of Congress, he would get security briefings and they would turn around right away and give them to ISA. Right. Well, right. and the hilarious thing is that Amar is a former Obama appointee, so he had to clear all kinds of clearances. Um, and he's a Christian, as I understand. Right. Uh, he's not even a Muslim, I believe. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what his faith orientation is, but it's not the point. The point is that he had to get a security clearance. Yeah. And if anything, it's just, you know, the distraction and the distortion of of his character um, and sort of going to that gutter of folks fears. Um, it's, it's just so blatant. And I think it's great that Amar is coming back and he is punching back really hard and he is not shying away from 
from what this is. One would hope that would turn off voters even in northern San Diego County. Uh, but it's significant that these two we've talked about are basic Orange County, part of San Diego County. Um, and there are at least two or three others, Mimi Walters is another one, Republicans who are endangered in, in Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The future of the United States Congress would be decided on behalf of the Democrats in what we used to call behind the Orange Curtain, uh, Orange County, California. Uh, a couple of other races. Um, the, the, uh, up in New York State also, Ant- Antonio Delgado. Yeah, one of the top races in the country, um, one of the most resourced races in the country. Um, Antonio is a really impressive candidate. He's running a really competitive race. Um, yeah, our folks there had a really exciting sort of unity rally. This might be kind of interesting and grassrootsy, I guess, for folks. Um, there were a lot of different folks in the primary who were in different spaces. And immediately when Antonio won, folks came around and held a huge unity rally from the grassroots to demonstrate the support that was going to be for him, you know, till Election Day. And on his end, the sort of the same unfair attacks, he's been attacked as, as a rapper, that he has these raps. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's blatant. Oh, my God. Order. They're not running on tax cuts. They're running on you know, <laughs> his his raps, his rhymes. Mm-hmm. Oh. And and they're not even like they're, they're, it, these are rhymes that are actually political in nature, really. I mean, this is oh. he 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 was uh, against the Iraq War, and uh, I believe it's John Faso, right? That's the district. Um, it's not. I don't think oh. it's actually Faso running the ads, although he's he's been sort of weak on denouncing them. But it's the, again the Congressional Leadership Fund with this sort of unlimited amounts of money they can spend in these districts mm-hmm. to defend uh, the Republicans there, right. Indivisible.org is where you can find out more about all of these races. Maybe even read some of the some of the raps. <laughs> <laughs> Check out his rap, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think it's worth pointing out that so we've talked about two blue states so far, and yet even in these blue states, there are states, there are districts that can still be picked up by Democrats. Uh, Eugene Blake, who's the vice chair of the DNC, who's an assemblyman from New York State, was in studio yesterday, mm-hmm. talking about opportunities in New York, mm-hmm. right, that don't overlook even the big blue states for picking up more more congressional seats, and which is also true of New Jersey, mm-hmm. with uh, New Jersey 7. You would think New Jersey is all blue, right? Mm-hmm. No opportunities there, but you've right. got... Right, and I think, uh, right, that's why Malinowski, our, that's why our model, um, yeah, our, our grassroots model is about organizing everywhere and really not sort of ignoring huge swaths of the country or huge swaths of an electorate. And so that's, as you look at our list of endorsements, um, but not just ours, because we have groups are everywhere and they're organizing everywhere. It's important to note that we approach this type of uh, electoral organizing with an eye, not just for this November's election, but for future elections and what building power on the left looks like in the long view. Now, um, one more congressional seat. Yesterday, James Comey wrote a check for the max. Uh, to um, the candidate Karen Wexton, her I think so right the Barbara Comstock Jennifer running, Wexton Jennifer, Jennifer Wexton, Wexton Jennifer yeah. Wexton right running against Barbara Comstock right across uh, the river here, which is a seat that looking better and better for Democrats, don't you think? The, yeah, and it's been just a I mean that one is that's one of the first seats that Democrats are saying we we have to pick up and it, that looks very clearly good. And, uh, what the amazing thing is that Republicans have thrown so much money at Comstock, they haven't cut her off in the same ways that they have some some of these other candidates. But to get back to your point on the on the Tom Malinowski race, I really do like I'm that. Sorry. I like yeah. that uh, that that district, the New Jersey Seven one. It's a very rich area. It's like the Summit, New Jersey area, 
Um, so a lot of pharmaceutical companies, but this is uh, sort of testing the the Trump effect a little bit too. With um, I think you know you have a lot of the so-called country club Republicans who um, like tax cuts and all that stuff, but um, they're maybe a little bit disgusted with Trump, and they're they're a little bit disgusted with the lack of oversight. Uh, and you have uh, candidate Leonard Lance, who's been I, fairly one of the most moderate uh, Republicans in Congress. He didn't vote against the health. He didn't vote for the health care bill. He didn't mm-hmm. vote for the tax bill. Uh, he was on the discharge petition for for uh, DACA. Um, so he's certainly been someone who has navigated this and, you know, the uh, right down the middle as much most you can. But in the end, it might not matter. It might it might just be his, that his association with the Republican Party right, led by right. Trump is right. might be and, and he, Trump will weigh him down. Right. No matter how hard right. he's trying. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and Hillary Clinton won his district, um, but he also won, he, he won that district himself. So um, he's, he's, I think, a pretty well-liked person, but certainly a race that is right on the bubble. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. You have one governor's race here. Uh, I'm sure this is not your entire list. This is not the entire list. Again, yeah, these are some indivisible. highlights. Indivisible.org yes. for candidates that you might want to, uh, and I hope you would, send some support to. Uh, Andrew Gillum in Florida, yes. probably the most exciting governor's race in, in the country. Would you agree? De- yeah. Definitely yeah. chief among them, yeah. It's so exciting. And um, you talk about the energy and the excitement. It's clearly on the side of Andrew Gillum. That's right. And we so we jumped, we jumped into his race in the primary. Um, and really, it, there were mm. a handful of grassroots organizations that jumped in for him from the broader national progressive community, but also from the Florida progressive community Um the new Florida Majority Pack, uh, is that Florida Majority Pack? They're looking mm-hmm. to build coalitions between Black and Brown voters to make sure that that voting block is really represented um, in these races. And so, what's exciting about Andrew's race is one, he was completely underestimated in the primary, um, and one with grassroots organizing, with building the base and growing the base. I mean, the amount of expansion that he had in folks who voted this primary, who had never voted in a primary before, is really striking. And the fact that he ran, a, you know, he ran with clear values. There were, he, he was very unapologetic and progressive, and that is exactly the what we're pointing to in a lot of these races, is that when you run and you're clear about your values, People get excited um, and they show up for you, but they have to get that sense that you mean it and that you have. And the other thing we're, we're learning in a lot of these races and these candidates is when they have a proximity to what they're talking about. Right. Andrew can talk about being the son of a construction worker, being the son of a bus driver and being worried about getting home safely. Right. He can talk about what it means to be working class and black in Florida in one sentence and people really connect to that. And I think that's it's really important that these candidates are not shying away from their hardship and they're not shying away from their values. And he's up against uh, a classic Trumper. Oh, my gosh. Ron DeSantis. Yeah. One of one of my old friends from the Freedom Caucus. (laughs) Uh, Well, the only first thing I want to say is just that um, this really is a key race. This is a, a prime example of whether or not you're going to, you know, bring basically bring out your bases. In, 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 in fact, in the Democratic primary, you had basically a choice. The Gwen Graham, which is a very sort of DCCC choice, uh, a former Total. member of Congress herself. Total. Um, and, 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 and I would say also a very skilled candidate her, yes, herself, yes, too. Yes, yes, um, And And Gillum, he, he just proved that he's a, he's a, he himself, though, he was a very strong candidate. Uh, he's been very capable here. Uh, but he's also been able to excite the base in a way that maybe Graham couldn't have done. And DeSantis, his whole, the whole way, has not gone towards, let me try to appeal to middle people. This is the guy who put his kids in Trump gear and did the Trumpiest ad we've ever seen. 
uh, you know, write, reading bedtime stories about, you know, building the border wall and uh, from uh, the art of the deal and whatnot. Uh, he has not shied away from who he is. And it's, it's been an amazing transition to see Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis, for me, was a guy, this guy who went to Harvard, uh, a guy who I always thought had a lot of libertarian leanings that uh, didn't quite come out in some, some ways. And yet he has gone full Trump. That's his, this is the way yeah. you know, forward for him. Uh, and he has no compunction about it. Right. I mean, right. upon so, winning the primary, he came out, like the first thing he did as the general election candidate was make a racist yeah, comment yeah. about Andrew. So yeah. it, it's clear what his his approach will be. All right. So the whole key, and you've, you've alluded to this a couple of times, right, is really, well, first voter registration, which may be passed by now. So still an opportunity in some states? Well, in some states there are same-day registration. Um, so folks yeah, should remember not that. Not enough. Right. Not enough. That should be everywhere, but not enough. Um, there, I think there's maybe 12 states that are left still with voter registration deadlines. Um, and I think the point on voter registration is just, you know, there's no way to know. We're going to have some surprises election night. But when you look at turnout and turnout in the primaries, when you look at voter registration and the records that have been set nationally and in certain key states, we have to be sort of feeling at least good about how we're coming into this. Right. A lot's going to happen. We have to look at those right. suburban districts, right. how these women really do show so up. So the first priority to make sure people are registered. Yes, registered to vote. <laughs> G-O-T-V, right? Yes. Get out the vote, yes. vote, vote. And the indications are, I ask you both, that w what we've seen in the primaries, that turnout has been pretty robust. Right. Historically so. Right. Right. Our turnout's up. Um, right. And it, it will have to anticipate how will their turnout be up. Right. Like we that's where we miss things in the past. And I think as long as we're focused on getting our folks out, making sure that they understand what's at stake, making sure that yeah. they know that voting is easy and accessible um, is going to be key. But, yeah, we have our folks out there. Uh, they're getting ready for a weekend of action um, this weekend, and then they're building out their get-out-the-vote efforts um, for right. the rest of the three we'll have weeks. to wrap it and leave it right there. Thanks for your great work, Thank Maria. Thank uh, Indivisible.org, and you can follow Matt, of course, at HuffPost.com. Both of you, we'll let you get back to work. Thanks for coming great. in. Have a great day, folks, and we'll be here tomorrow looking for you. This is The Bill Press Show.